0: Welcome to a special series of EMS World podcasts. I am Hilary Gates, Senior Editorial and Program Director for EMS World. The COVID-19 pandemic has challenged and impacted the EMS profession in unique and lasting ways. So what are the best practices for us as clinicians, leaders, managers, medical directors, and for EMS as a profession? EMS World is proud to bring you the latest information from our COVID-19 webinars, now available in audio-only podcast episodes. This episode, EMS Airway Management and Training During the Coronavirus Pandemic, features Rob Dixon and Casey Patrick and is sponsored by Ambu.
1: Hello, and welcome to today's webinar, EMS Airway Management and Training During the Coronavirus Pandemic. My name is Jonathan Bassett, Editorial Director at EMS World, and we're very happy to have everybody joining us today. We would like to thank AMBU for sponsoring today's presentation. During this webinar, feel free to submit questions and comments for our speakers by using the question submission section on your screen. And at the end of the presentation, we'll try to answer as many of your questions as we can in the time allowed. And today we are very excited to welcome our two speakers. Dr. Rob Dixon is Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine, as well as EMS Medical Director for Montgomery County Hospital District EMS in Houston. Dr. Dixon is board certified in emergency medicine in both the U.S. and Australasia, and has subspecialty board certification in EMS Medicine. Joining Rob is Dr. Casey Patrick. Dr. Patrick is Assistant Medical Director at Montgomery County Hospital District EMS in Houston, and Dr. Patrick is also a practicing emergency physician in multiple community emergency departments in the greater Houston area. And with those introductions, I will turn it over to our presenters. Gentlemen, thanks so much for joining us today, and please take it away.
2: Thanks, John. And before we get started we just want to thank EMS World for having us today and like everyone we spent the last 2 or 3 weeks here at MCHD trying to gather synthesize implement best practices when approaching the airway in the covid-19 pandemic this is uh, you know unprecedented times and before we get into the the nuts and bolts of the discussion we want to make sure the listeners know that these aren't the only ways or the best ways necessarily. Uh, they're the tools that we've chosen here at MCHD to provide best care for our patients and also to protect, protect our medics uh, here at the service. There's a flood of information coming from China, South Korea, Italy, Spain. You know, some of it's peer reviewed, most of it's anecdotal. And going through this, uh, Rob and I have found really that if you wanna support virtually any algorithm, You can look around long enough and you're going to find someone, some specialty body who will support you. So the the approach in this presentation is a variation on what seems to be, to us, about 80% of the best practices from uh, critical care ICU resources out there. Got to give special thanks to one of Rob and I's uh, colleagues at Indiana University, Tim Ellender, critical care ICU EM specialist there, We've drawn from Josh Farkas and Scott Weingard and M.C.R.I.T. and PlumCrit, who most of us are all following very closely. Those guys always put out excellent stuff, uh, peer-reviewed, logical-based approaches. We've looked over Safe Airway Society down in Australasia, their guidelines, many, many others. So getting started, let's start with the basics. How is the virus transmitted? What makes the airway dangerous? Right, so Casey... I mean, this is droplet
3: transmission. So in in layman's terms, it's spit, right? So our first order of business is put a surgical mask on the patient, right? Even before uh, we approach a patient, we approach scene. the patient looks fairly stable. We try at MCHD to keep a two meter distance or six feet patient contact, even in the non respiratory complaints, so we can kind of sort out the problem and see, does this look like it's going to turn into a PPE call? This protect us from their droplets right because these things they they, normally the droplets is just spit coming out of their mouth um and touching them it's this stuff normally is not aerosolized
2: but they can aerosolize so these are the danger zones how do we generate aerosols and if you look in the literature you're going to see the term agp or aerosol generating procedures and we've got a few of those here. T- tell, the, tell the listeners about the aerosol generating procedures, Dr. Dick.
3: So it's really anything that
2: sprays the spit.
3: Okay. So anything high flow, example from EMS would be a non-rebreather mask or anything high pressure, like non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, CPAP or BiPAP, or really Casey, anything invasive. So tracheal intubation, supraglottic insertion, deep airway suctioning, or any nebulized medication. And then kind of lastly, that we haven't talked a bunch, you don't hear a bunch talked about, doffing PPE can aerosolize this stuff. So today, guys, we've got four simple rules for you. And we'll start with rule number one. In this new era that we've, we've entered into in the last two weeks, it's, it's a big paradigm change for MCHD right? We're a very aggressive service and we kind of pride ourselves on being out front in therapies and specifically in airway management. But in the in the era of COVID-19 that's upon us and the situation we find ourselves in in medicine now, less is more. So rule number one, less is more. Dr. Patrick, can you talk us through, talk us through this
2: rule? Where did this come from? So first of all, we, we really have to take the priority of protecting ourselves. And we're going to Beat this horse till it's dead during the talk. But if we as the, the paramedics, the emergency physicians, the emergency nurses, the emergency respiratory therapists, if we're not around to take care of COVID-19 patients, they're in big trouble. We know from reports from Italy, from China, from Seattle, from Spain, from South Korea, that these COVID-19 patients are presenting with what the critical care the pulmonologists are calling silent hypoxia. And what's that mean? You know, most of the time when we see somebody with a SAT in the low 80s, let's say they're satting 81%, how do they normally look, Dr. Dixon? Yeah, they normally look terrible. They look awful. And converse, in the COVID-19 patients, sometimes they can present with SATs of 80, 81, 82, and really not be in severe distress. And that's not something that we're necessarily used to seeing. So if we go introducing airway procedures on these patients, then we're going to increase the droplets produced, we're going to increase our exposure, and we're going to increase our transmission. So leaving these patients alone and thinking less is more, this is a drastic departure, like Dr. Dixon said, from our normal approach uh, as emergency providers here at MCHD. We, again, take pride in our advanced airway protocols, and we really, all of us as As emergency providers, from the pre-hospital setting to the emergency department setting, even the ICU setting, we have to back off some now and protect ourselves. And, you know, once we get the patients to the hospital, we're going to have more negative pressure. We're going to have more information, x-ray, lab work, echo, you name it. We're going to have more health, respiratory therapists, nurses, emergency physicians, and all those things are going to lead to less risk and less risk of healthcare worker transmission. So at MCHD we've got some airway no-no's and we're going to avoid at all costs the following airway maneuvers. 100% non-rebreather mask, number one. Number two, non-invasive positive pressure. Number three, bag valve mask and number four, uh, invasive suction. Now. We're not removing these procedures from the armamentarium. We're not taking these things off the truck necessarily. There's some rare exceptions if we move through the talk where these are all going to be needed and useful. We just want to take a, you know, not a 180 approach, but maybe a 170 and say these are going to be minimized at all costs and we want to avoid them. So
3: Casey, you talk about uh, aerosol generating procedures or AGPs, you know, I mean, how do you define that? What is, a, what is an aerosol generating flow? I mean, what causes this? Give me some examples.
2: So this is one that doesn't have a clear-cut answer. And a lot of the COVID-19 questions out there don't have clear-cut answers. This wasn't in existence for humankind four months ago. So this is all brand new. And we're all reaching and studying and trying to look through the best, the best research and the best evidence. But this is one that's up for debate six liters per minute of oxygen flow pops up pretty repeatedly as sort of a, a break point or a danger zone. Now, is anyone proven that? I, I don't think that it's proven anywhere out there, but here at MCHD in our service, we're teaching the medics to limit the flow to six liters if at all possible. Just for reference, what's a cough? Flow of a cough is 400 liters per minute. So when you get that hacking patient on the back of the truck and they're they're wearing out the back of that mask with cough, just know that that's a high flow situation too, and that's why you want to put the mask on the patient. So remember that there are vents on the the non-rebreather mask. When you put a non-rebreather on a patient, you turn the flow up greater than six liters. So when we're in situations where we have to use a non-rebreather mask, and we'll talk about some of those in a bit, as you can see, Cover those cover those vent holes. We've got ECG electrodes on all of our trucks here at MCHD. That's what we're advising our medics to cover the vent holes with. And also, don't forget to put the surgical mask back on the patient over top of the non rebreather. Right.
3: good safety tip there. What case? What about non invasive positive pressure ventilation, CPAP or BiPAP? What are you recommending there?
2: Well, this is this is one that. You know, from we're, we're having nightly calls here at MCHD to try to discuss best practices and, and clinical questions with our medics. And we get this question just about every night, night nightly, in some, in some variation. And this is because realistically, positive pressure ventilation, non invasive, in the pre hospital setting has revolutionized care over the past 10 to 15 years. Patients that were intubated at the drop of a hat in 2005, are managed with non-invasive. Whether your service carries a portable CPAP system, whether you have vents with you know, bilevel positive pressure, you know, there's wide variation of the ways this can be administered in the EMS setting. But non-invasive positive pressure ventilation is both a high pressure and high flow situation, which makes it high risk from an aerosol generation um, perspective. So we're discouraging this at MCHD, again, for a couple reasons, the big one being provider safety. We don't want to have all of our medics infected with the coronavirus. Number two, and more importantly, will non-invasive even help? Um, And this is one where we're going to have to really use our clinical acumen and start to try to make our differential a little more solid. because. You know, back in November of 2019, it was pretty easy to give a patient a trial of BIPAP. You could just slap it on, and if it didn't work, you moved on to plan B. But that exhaled air is blowing out in the back of the truck. And so now that option really isn't uh, the best option, just a random trial of non-invasive positive pressure, because these COVID-19 patients are suffering from what? They're suffering from a viral pneumonia. And if you look at the pneumonia literature, we've got a reference at the bottom of this slide, and we'll include these in the, in the show notes for the listeners that want to take a look at some of these references. And there are many more like this one that show that in the pneumonia setting or in the pneumonia literature, non-invasive really doesn't show a mortality benefit, and several of these studies show a trend towards worse outcomes. So if you've got a COVID-19 febrile, tachycardic, cough patient, Non-invasive may not be helpful, and it potentially could be harmful. In the ED setting, the preference from most of the ICU pulmonary critical care stuff that we've seen is high-flow nasal cannula uh, being preferred in the ED-ICU setting, not something that most of us have on the back of our ambulance, but thought to be more helpful for these patients and likely less risky from an aerosol generation standpoint. Do we have any evidence? From other outbreaks, and again, this COVID nineteen has several, you know, evil cousins, as Dr. Dixon likes to say. The the SARS epidemic uh, back in 2009, the MERS epidemic uh, in the Middle East uh, was also a coronavirus. And There's is some literature from uh, from that from that infection, uh, you know, that that presentation that shows that these folks don't do great on non-invasive, they showed a 92% failure rate of non-invasive positive pressure um, in in the Mears epidemic. But aren't we still going to see COPD and CHF patients, right? The rest of the public is still going to get sick. They're still going to have acute pulmonary edema. and still going to have bronchospasm. And so we really have to think about what diagnosis you're going to put at the top of your differential list. And if you think it's a pneumonia, Let's not slap non-invasive on. Now, if you get a 19-year-old that's got tight lungs and is a primarily asthma, then non-invasive may be your answer. Um, So we've got to pick the right patient. We've got to pick the acute pulmonary edema, we've got to pick the obstructive lung disease, not random shortness of breath patients with just slapping on a mask and taking a trial. Again, in the acute pulmonary edema patient, I'm gonna have to make a shameless plug here for my bolus. Uh, IV nitroglycerin. I'm a believer and a lover. We've published on that here at MCHD. Uh, you know, doses of uh, one milligram to two milligrams of IV nitroglycerin can often eliminate the need for for a non-invasive mask in these patients, making it a moot point. Uh, secondly, if you're going to use this, and you think, okay, I hear you, but this patient is a COPD they're tight, they're struggling to breathe, they're tripodting, everything here points to a COPD exacerbation. There's wheezes. Uh, this patient has a history of smoking and they're on HOMO2. This doesn't sound like a COVID pneumonia. It sounds like a COPD exacerbation. We've got to put a viral filter on the mask. And we'll talk about that as we move through. And number three, they got to make sure these patients are calm, right? Thrashing patients are aerosol generating patients. So we want to use uh, ketamine here at MCHD, we're we're believers and lovers and, and have lots of experience with that. So we don't want the patients to be thrashing and grabbing at the mask and, and spitting and snotting. What about bag valve masks? Where's our danger zones with a bag valve mask, Dr. Dixon?
3: So the, the danger zone is really to kind of know your equipment. If you if you look at the top of the slide, where does the exhalation vent to? It has to vent somewhere, right? And if you if you don't use a filter between the mask and the bag valve mask it's venting right back into the back of the truck um additionally to that right we have to use a good two-handed seal we we want to keep as close to system as we possibly can if in fact we have to use a bag valve mask so filter closest to the patient and make sure we have a really really good seal um you know i mean i think that those are the keys there Kind of go through the algorithm with it, Casey. So I get a patient and, and I put them on some nasal cannula oxygen. And I dial it up and dial it up, but they're still not getting better. And I've got, I feel like the patient's sick enough. I've got to progress through the algorithm. Walk me through the algorithm. What do you do?
2: So I'm going to try PEEP valve uh, you know, on all these patients. PEEP is going to be uh, key. So we want to make sure we're using PEEP in these situations if we can. Um, But if they're hypoxic after five to six liters nasal cannula, you know, this is probably question number two that we get not on our calls is what direction do we go next? And realistically, this is our MCHD algorithm. Again, this is not the only algorithm. This is not necessarily the correct algorithm. This is just ours. And so get to six liters, Patient still hypoxic, still struggling. Again, I would put the struggling portion in there as being key. Because if you get an excuse me a nasal cannula on a patient and they're 84% and they're not struggling, I would go back to rule number one and say less is more. But if they're struggling, then I would put a non-rebreather on the patient. I would occlude the vent and I would put a surgical mask over that. Make sure that they're calm. So if they need some ketamine, I would give them ketamine liberally here. We don't want patients thrashing. If there's Still struggling at that point, you feel like your work of breathing is is uh, really unsustainable. Then I would move to non-invasive positive pressure, whatever you have, CPAP or BiPAP, closed circuit as possible. We'll talk more about that and the filter as close as you can get to the patient, uh, and PEEP there as well. If, you know, make sure that we're using PEEP liberally. These patients need recruitment. They like the PEEP and as always, step four is going to be on our list, and that is consider supraglottic airway or endotracheal tube for a, for a definitive airway. Uh, that's going to be, we're going to see these patients in frank respiratory failure. I would say supraglottic preferred to an endotracheal tube just because less mucking in the airway and the less mucking you have, the less less viral spray, the less viral transmission you have. If you do decide to innovate with an endotracheal tube, these These steps are really solid out there in almost all the recommendations. We wanna use video laryngoscopy. We don't want our faces down in the patient's mouth. We want the most experienced provider doing the intubation so that it's smooth and quick and single attempt. Want minimal, no bagging, minimal to no suction. And there's also some recommendations now, talking back to the old days, lidocaine and or fentanyl, uh, used to pretreat, minimize cough. So, rule number two, Doctor Dixon,
3: use a closed system. So, I mean, assume that any exhalation from the patient is spewing into the atmosphere and can potentially be aerosolizing it. Leaks on any part of a system, no matter which system Doctor Patrick just talked about, um, can lead to viral spread. Um, you know. I think there's too many KC equipment variations to discuss, so know yours. I mean, we spent a lot of time here in the last two weeks meticulously going over our equipment. Check out our Podcast 360 channel on our our YouTube channel. Uh, We have a couple different pieces where we specifically go over and discuss uh, how we set up our kit to make it safer. Um, you know, another thing I would say is when you talk about closed systems is don't randomly suction patients. Like Dr. Patrick's not suggesting you don't have suction ready, but just remember every entry into the airway allows a potential viral escape. You know, obviously sometimes it's required, but be judicious with it. Remember on any aerosol generating procedure, an N95 mask uh, is preferred for the provider. And to, to kind of go back one more. Just to reiterate, when Dr. Patrick said, you know, the uh, non-rebreather, how we're escalating, just remember that in a respiratory patient, to begin with, we're going to put a surgical mask on the patient. You can put a nasal cannula on the patient and a surgical mask. That surgical mask, when you elevate to non-rebreather, will already be there. So proper filters are are kind of a key, uh, Casey. You know, we talked about the filter closest to the patient in layman's terms, for me, simple it, dumb it down for me. Tell me about these
2: filters. Tell me what you know about these filters. So, I, to answer your question, honestly, I don't know much. I know more, more today than I ever thought I would know about these filters. And really, the key is going to be to ask people who, who know. There are so many brands and so many varieties. Check with your materials department. Respiratory therapists are just excellent resources for all of this equipment check for the connectors, for flow, for filter quality. You know, if you don't know, lean on folks that do. Bottom line is we need HEPA filters. Uh, HEPA filters, by definition, have, you know, 99.999% filtration at a level of one hundredth of a micron. How big is the uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus? It's 0.125 0.125 microns, so you're filtering those out uh, easily with a, with a true HEPA filter. But again, make sure you know what you've got because not every filter is a viral filter. So that's the that's the nerdy stuff. Tell us the practical filter tips, Doctor Dixon, yeah, that yeah, you would use in your practice. Yeah, the practical
3: tips are how to set up this kit. Right, remember, put the filter first. Avoid manipulation and exposure. So say you have a tracheal tube and you're swapping from the bag valve mass to the vent, put your thumb over the end of the tube. Don't let any gas escape. So close systems, filter closest to the patient on every limb and again, double check the compatibility of these filters and the equipment you're using.
2: And really, the I think the important one in that list is to put the filter on before you perform the procedure. The, the less exposure that open tube has of the air, the less virus can spray out. So if you're going to put an SGA in or you're going to put an ET tube in, just to reiterate and make sure the listeners understand, that viral filter should be on the SGA before you insert it.
3: Yeah, and remember, right?
2: this is a hypoxic patient, guys, so when we jump out, remember,
3: for rule number one, less is more, we jump out of the truck and pull out the back valve mask, and start ventilating this patient, if we don't have that filter on there closest to the patient, we're, we're ex- the exhale gas, the aerosolized gas, is coming right back into the back of
2: the truck. So just for visual, picture worth a thousand words, you see the ET tube, you see the green viral filter, and then you see the normal suction port, you see the uh, end tidal CO2 port coming off, now, some of you out there may ask about deep suctioning the patient. You know, in the hospital setting, you may want the uh, deep suction port to be proximal to the filter. That's going to be an ICU uh, decision and a respiratory therapy decision. In our situation, get the filter as close as you can to the patient. Right.
3: Dr. Patrick, what about NEBS? Can we possibly survive an EMS without nebulized medication. This is one of the other, uh, the number one topics on our nightly
2: uh, crew phone call. This would be number three. This would be number three. three. So we all lean on nebulized albuterol, and it really falls into that same category as let's give them a trial of non-invasive, let's give them a trial neb. And we have to get out of the habit of reflexively giving albuterol via nebulizer to every short-of-breath patient. We are in the process of rolling out a protocol here at MCHD to use a meter-dose inhaler albuterol, the puffer, uh, with a homemade spacer using existing supplies that you can find on almost any ambulance. But really, even before you get to using meter-dose inhaler albuterol, think about the actual need. Listen for wheezes. Do we use albuterol in common pneumonia patients? We don't clinically, or at least we shouldn't. And in this situation where nebulization and medication is definitely concerning for an aerosol generating procedure, we don't want to be nebulizing without a clear clinical indication. Albuterol is not going to make a drastic impact on viral pneumonia. Again, let's go back to that 19 year old asthma patient. Let's say you're an astute clinician. You're the top of your paramedic class. Patients tight, wheezing, shark fin, tidal catnography pattern. Patient's tiring. How, how can we activate those beta-2s? There's been some discussion on a lot of uh, our email listservs, a lot of uh, questions we've gotten from our medics about turbutylene, which is a sub-Q or IV beta agonist. It's uh, old school. I've never used it. You're older than me. You I, may have used it. And I, no, no,
3: actually, I have never used it. And I think that, you know, we have a tried and true beta agonist, right, epinephrine, so, this is life saving in the severe asthmatic. And here at MCHD, we use 0.3 milligrams IM uh, early. And I think that this is something we're going to get back to. It's going to be our go to safe beta agonist in this pandemic.
2: And we did not order tubuline. Admittedly, it'll probably be on shortage anytime, probably on shortage already. We feel like introducing an unfamiliar med with unfamiliar dosing is going to increase our med error risk. And really, with Epi on the truck already, is redundant. We've got a beta agonist that we, we know and we, we have experience with.
3: So Casey, what about the, the data out there? I mean, it, talk to us about the science. Is there data out there to say that this is an equivalent therapy for our patients, a nebulized medication versus a, a multi-dose inhaler?
2: I like to call it the magic smoke. Patients will argue with you. This was This was a topic really when I was in residency 15 years ago that I surrendered on. I gave up. We were taught by the EBM gurus. Uh, I can remember hearing a speech from, uh, from Kevin Rogers, one of our mentors and probably the most talented and logical and down-to-earth and reasonable emergency physician that ever walked the face of this earth, gave me the, the, the EBM slash logical reasoning for using MDI albuterol instead of NEBs. And as soon as you walked into a COPD-er and you tried to give them a puffer instead of their nebulized albuterol, they look at you cross-eyed. And medics have looked at us cross-eyed for the past week. But there is a ton of data out there. And this is just one study out of Cincinnati and CHEST in 2002. They looked at 1,400 patients prospectively, patients presented to the ED with asthma exacerbations, and they gave one group albuterol via meter dose inhaler. They gave the other group albuterol via nebulizer. And what they find? They found that the MDI patients, the ones that got them puffer, not nebulized albuterol, had shorter ED stays. They had better stats. They had better peak flows. So their oxygen saturation was better. Their peak flows were higher. And they had less return visits to the ED, less bounce backs. So, is an MDI equal to a nebulizer? Heck, in this study, it looks like it may have even been better. Now, again, we all love the magic smoke, but maybe it's not quite as magic as we think. So if you want to see an example of how we made the spacer, and the spacer is the big issue, and what's a spacer do? A spacer allows the uh, meter dose albuterol to be suspended in the air so that it doesn't smack the back of your soft palate. So if you take the puffer and you just take a puff out of the puffer with no spacer, those particles don't have time to suspend. You're not inhaling them. They're just sticking on the back of your mouth. The spacer allows those to suspend in the air and for you to inhale the actual medication as opposed to hitting the back of your throat. We looked at sourcing spacers here at MCHD and cost prohibitive really, and they're going to be hard to find because everybody's looking for them right now. So we took the kit from our normal NEB kit, we took uh, some ECG electrodes, and we came up with a makeshift spacer that we found works really well and is really not cost prohibitive at all. Check out our video here and see what you think.
3: Hi, right, buddy, and welcome back to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast 360. I'm Dr. Rob Dixon. Today, I have our Associate Medical Director, Dr. Casey Patrick, with me. Hello, everyone. So today, guys, we're going to talk about alternative devices to deliver albuterol. Albuterol being our one largest nebulized medication for respiratory illness. We give it to patients with asthma or reactive airways that are wheezing, uh, and given the COVID-19 pandemic and the inherent risk we have with aerosolizing uh, droplets whenever we use a regular nebulizer, MCHD is, is making a switch to an alternative method. This is what the finished product looks like. Very simple and Dr. Patrick's going to show you how to make one with the kit that most of us have. This is our kit, our regular nebulized kit that we have at MCHD
4: now. So we're going to move from nebulized albuterol to albuterol via a meter dose inhaler. And as you know, with most meter dose inhalers, we use spacers. So we're going to work with things that we already have in our kit. We're going to start with a mask and use the mask as you would before, but instead of hooking this up and using the tubing to connect to the nebulizer, we're going to take the tubing and insert on the mask as we did before, and then use the meter dose inhaler to attach. So it makes a snug fit on both ends. The mask is on the patient. Remember in pandemic times, this patient's likely to have a mask on their face, so you'll just wanna remove it for medication administration. If they're receiving oxygen, that can be continued via nasal nasal cannula. If they've got a non-rebreather on, that will have to be removed in order to administer the medicine and then place back on once the patient uh, gets the albuterol. Each meter dose puff of medication is 200 micrograms. So our protocol is going to be for eight puffs. Yes. So eight administrations, and then that will be able to be repeated one time. So it'll be two doses of 1.6 milligrams of albuterol. Remember that the mask has two holes on the side, so we're gonna use our ECG electrodes to cover those. So you wanna peel those off and just stick those over the hole. Again, all of this is an effort to prevent aerosolization spread of uh, the COVID virus. So that's what the finished product looks like. As we know, this is not affecting children at nearly the rate that it's affecting adults. So this is an adult mask. If you have to use a pediatric mask, if this is a pediatric patient, Uh, The same fit applies with the pediatric mask. So, thanks for watching, MCHD Paramedic Podcast 360. As always, we'll be back with future episodes. Uh, Like us, leave us a thumbs up. If you have questions or concerns, leave them in the comments, and we'll talk to everyone again soon.
3: So, Casey, MDIs are expensive, and... and And as you said, everybody, there's a run in the bank. Everybody is going to buy these things out. So a couple of other things that we brought into our system is that, you know, how many people have you run on guys that are known asthmatics that are known obstructive lung disease patients that don't have their own albuterol puffer, right? Just before we go and utilize our stocks, ask the patient, do you have uh, your own albuterol? And if so, administer their meds. And one of the keys that we're seeing from our colleagues in the hospitals they are asking us, please bring those nebu- bring those Albuterol MDIs with the patient to the hospital. Why? Because hopefully they know this about nebulized and aerosol generating uh, potential for nebulized medications, and they're decreasing their risk. Um, you know, I'd go back to, again, what Casey said, you know carefully examine the patient, make sure you even need to give albuter, right? Just remember, in all of our careers, we can look back, uh, and it's a quite a rare event, that the difference between life and death is an albuterol, uh, whether it's meter dose or nebulife, right? What's life-saving in severe, severe asthma? It's imepinephrine, right? It's airway management. And it's it's not helpful in pneumonia. So the we're focusing on trying to sort out these patients who are potential COVID patients, which pretty soon may be all of our patients. So I would be very, very reluctant to uh, keep albuterol at the top of my list as something that was just a must-have in these patients.
2: And again, we've got another beta agonist in those true asthmatics. This is going to be key, early, 0.3, 1 to 1,000 IM, Again, not indicated in COPD. Real quick disclaimer there: there's no evidence that, that Epi is is helpful in COPD. Oftentimes, those patients are older; their vascular path. It's a little more risky and procedure to shoot them with 0.3 milligrams of I.M. Epi. And I think one of the things, Casey, that we did mention that really helps sort these
3: patients out when you look at that clinical picture: is it someone in that right age group, and they normally come with that diagnosis of asthma, don't they? Right, asthma. In and of itself is a chronic diagnosis of chronic recurrent bronchoconstriction and inflammation, obstructive lung disease. So many of them, they're going we're gonna get that in the history. So take a good history, do an ex- a good exam, and don't pull the trigger inadvertently on just you know uh, albuterol for everybody.
2: Let's move on. We rule one: less is more. Rule two: closed systems. Good seals. Know where your know where your exhalation ports are venting and filter those. What about rule three? So rule, rule three, Doctor dixon
3: Yeah, rule three is you know mind yourself when you're doing CPR. Right, this is a very common procedure at uh, for EMS. You know, and we need to hold CPR when we're in the airway. Right, don't splash the airway manager with the virus. So some simple, simple steps, Casey. Put a mask on every patient during CPR here at mchd uh with the coronavirus being really fairly endemic in houston in the montgomery county area now we are wearing full ppe on every cpr why because you cannot sort out it's very difficult to sort out um, the coronavirus from the non-coronavirus suspected patients so cpr uh, is can cpr being be an aerosol generating uh procedure It's debatable, but I would err on the side of caution. Um, uh, And that brings us to really kind of an ethical question that everyone, I think, is facing pretty soon is, should we perform CPR on these COVID-19 patients at all? And uh, that is something each service will have to answer for themselves. There is no clear answer now but I would put it out there as something for our services, our medical directors to think about.
2: And again, just to reiterate, when we talk about putting a mask on the patient during CPR, we mean specifically a surgical mask. A surgical mask, correct.
3: So the tube's in place, the SGA's in place, the filter's in place, uh, Casey, so no more AGP. So
2: I'm all good, right? Entitled, check, right? Got a good waveform, you know you're in the right spot. And I would argue that... you're now entering the true danger zone because what have you done? You've assessed the patient. You've, in your mind, assessed your own COVID risk. You've PPE'd up. You've taken that risk. You manage the airway, the crashing patient. You know, that adrenaline rush is starting to wear off. And then what do you do? You let your guard down. And we know from the MERS epidemic, from the SARS epidemic of 2009. We know that the most dangerous time for healthcare worker transmission, or one of the most dangerous times, is doffing of PPE. Think about what happens when this young lady snaps that glove. If there's fluid on the glove, what does it do? It's aerosolized. That flies in the air. That's virus. So we have to be uber careful and uber methodical when we're doffing our PPE. So here's some doffing tips. Number one, just hit on it. Slow and methodical. We're not in a rush at this point because we know we're covered in virus. We just managed the COVID-19 airway. The virus is on our gloves, it's on our mask, it's on our gown, and we should just assume that we we are covered in it. Now, we know from Hong Kong data that if we wear our PPE and we wear it properly, we don it and doff it properly, that our risk of healthcare worker transmission is exceedingly low. That process though includes and should be emphasized probably more than any of the others that doffing portion because that's when we're most coated with the virus for lack of a better term so we want to use a partner we want to do this as buddy system and use our partners to help us get our PPE off appropriately there's lots of videos out there about ordering we'll talk about our order but in general we should go from most contaminated to least and from the mERS epidemic, which is much more uh, deadly than COVID-19, uh, in many of those Middle Eastern hospitals, they saw a drastic decrease in healthcare worker transmission after they started washing and decontaminating their hands and even their gloves between and before each doffing step. And this is something that I have never been taught in my doffing procedure. That is, realistically, when you're finished, with the intubation, you go to get hand sanitizer, or you go to the sink and you wash your gloves, and then you take your gloves off because they're the most contaminated. And then you t- wash your hands, and you take your gown off. Then you wash your hands, and you take your eyewear off, and then you finish by washing your hands and taking your mask off. And Casey, you
3: know it's been it's been suggested here. I mean this this is a, a really uh, a disease that we get. T- Heaps of information to sort through, but I've heard more and more um, online about double gloving in these patients as well. So, do what Doctor Patrick suggests: so washing your initial pair of gloves, and you may want to consider double gloving as well. That's I've heard more and more and more about
2: that, especially earlier this. Week. Absolutely, and watch your watch <coughs> your your uh, your transition points. So, where your gloves meet your gown is very important. Uh, where your glasses uh, meet your ears where your mask straps meet your head and your neck be very careful with transmission points and again our order gloves gown eye protection mask and there are resources out there and there are folks out there that will argue or at least teach to take your gown off first and to roll your gloves up into your gown that's all predicated on you having a, a tear-free or a rip-free gown so that is definitely an option that's acceptable I don't want to get into the details of doing this. Find your way, make it repeatable, and go from most contaminated to least. That's what, I would, that's what I would leave you with there. And wash your hands between each step, before, after, one million times. My hands are going to be lizard hands before this, uh, before this pandemic is over. So rule number four and final. Number one, less is more. Number two, know where, know where your virus is venting and keep closed circuits. Number three, stay out of the airway and wear PPE during CPR. And number four,
3: safety is your key, right? This is a new era. Uh, we're all practicing vastly different than we did a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we have to think about the community good in these disaster situations. And so <clears throat> EMS in emergency medicine and in medicine in general all over the world, we are making choices uh, to try to protect our healthcare workers. Cause as Dr. Patrick said multiple times, right? We can't take care of our patients here at MCHD. If we don't take care of ourselves, we got to take care of ourselves and our partners first and foremost, before we can take care of the patients. So slow yourself down, make sure you're wearing your proper PPE. It's going to protect you, right? If we're all sick, there's no one that's going to be able to take care of these, these surge of patients. So I think we've done, uh, uh, it's been a really, really good review, Casey. I'd like you just to, can you hit the high points for us and take it home uh, for the listeners?
2: Absolutely. So number one, avoid high flow, avoid high pressure if at all possible. If you're going to use those things, use them with a purpose and use them in the right diagnostic situations. Number two, don't be afraid. We've got good evidence. Meter dose inhaler albuterol is as good or more effective than nebulized albuterol. We're in uncharted waters here. These are times that we've never seen or dealt with. It's totally okay to have the patient bring along their inhaler and administer that inhaler to the patient while en route. That's safer for you and just as good if not better for the patient. Know your filters, keep them close to the patient. So know your filters and keep them close. You want as little distance in your tubing Set up between the patient exhalation and a good hepaviral filter. And if you don't know what your filtration capabilities are, find your materials, folks, find a respiratory therapist, they'll be able to answer that question. Avoid deep suction at all possible. I've been a part of managing hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of airways, and somebody in it inevitably sticks the Yank Hour in the patient's throat during intubation, no matter what, every single time it seems like. And that's a habit that we just have to stop. Going back through the rules one more time. Number one, less is more. If the patient is satting 80% and they're not an extremist, let's treat patients and not treat numbers.
3: Put a a surgical mask and some nasal cannula oxygen on them and give them some diesel.
2: Use closed circuits as much as possible. Know where your exhalation ports are, You want a viral filter between the patient and your exhalation ports. Go in with materials, go in with your respiratory folks and look through all your parts and pieces. I know we have spent the last week doing that, and I was fairly uneducated until this. Know Know where your vents are and filter those vents. Don't get in the airway during CPR. Stop the compressions manage the airway, restart CPR. This goes against all our hands-on, no pause rules that we've worked so hard on over the past 10 to 15 years, but we don't wanna spray virus all over our providers. And really that leads us right into number four and that is safety is key. And if we're not well to take care of our patients, then the community is gonna be really hurting. So to go back to the beginning and just reiterate, this is our MCHD way. There are other ways out there. We'd be happy to listen to other folks' ideas and best practices. This is truly a time for collaboration and a time for learning from each other. So, you know, we're happy to take questions. We're happy to, uh, to take ideas and to hear, you know, other thoughts on how to manage these airways because this is a tough time. Before we do that, quick shameless plug for our MCHD Paramedic Podcast. You can find us. Anywhere where you listen to podcasts, uh, iTunes, SoundCloud, uh, Stitcher, Google Play Store. Also, if you search MCHD on YouTube, you'll find our Paramedic Podcast 360, where we try to attack some of the more visually uh, appropriate educational topics. And we've got our albuterol and our spacer on there. We've also got some airway management pearls on there and some other episodes. And thank EMS World for having us. Anything you want to add in closing, Dr. Dixon? No, it's a great review,
3: Casey. Thanks very much to EMS World and our uh, the sponsors for putting this on.
1: And
0: thank you so much to Casey and Rob. Uh, so much great information here. Uh, if I use an entitled CO2 circuit on a patient and I plug it into the monitor, is there a chance that that monitor will itself become contaminated? I'll let
3: you guys take that one. Yeah, great question. The answer is no, if you're using the viral filter. Remember, uh, the viral filter always goes closest to the patient. So if you're on a supraglottic tracheal tube or a CPAP face mask, it will go uh, face mask or tube, viral filter, then in tidal circuit. So it's, it's upstream of the uh, viral filter.
0: All right, good. We uh, have a question here on uh, masks. There seems to be conflicting practice of EMS providers wearing surgical masks versus N95s. Uh, do I need an N95 on every call with a COVID patient or only when I'm performing an airway maneuver?
4: This really is a, a million-dollar question that no one has uh, the uh, a solid answer to. There's evidence from uh, the original SARS epidemic that N95s as compared to a surgical masks in general contact are equally protective for healthcare workers. So really the answer to this question is going to be service dependent and supply dependent. Uh, all things being equal, if I had an infinite supply of N95 masks, I would supply my medics with N95 masks for ev- every encounter. I would absolutely uh, regardless, have them in an N95 for every airway uh, procedure, every aerosol generating procedure. There is, go- There has to be some benefit there. Uh, some of the things folks have been looking at, There's, if anybody's been following this on social media, there's UV light decontamination for reuse. There's heat uh, sterilization. I have partners that are putting... Uh, surgical masks on over N95s so that they can remove the surgical masks, throw those away and protect the N95 from contamination. So for sure when you're performing an airway procedure, an aerosol generating procedure N95, uh, the rest of the time probably a surgical mask is adequate.
3: Yeah and I would say Casey to add to that one of the things that we're doing here at MCHD is that now, um, given the uh, kind of community endemic spread of COVID 19, we are using an N95 on every run, not just a respiratory run. Our flags, we we kept our dispatch flags of fever and cough respiratory symptoms to kind of flag a potential PPE call. But now our providers are wearing N95s on every run. It's just too hard to sort these sort these patients out. We've got a bunch of one offs that. Didn't look like they were going to be in a 95 required mask. Um, the other thing would be, is uh, as stocks dwindle, one of the things we're doing with those masks, that mask we're going to reuse throughout the entire shift and put it in a paper bag taped to the side door of the truck. But there is talk here of uh, potential, depending on how far this goes along, to take those paper bags at the end of the shift and put them in a put them in a container and at some point recycle those masks again for another use, decontaminate those masks with UV light uh, or some other source for another use.
4: And again, that's gonna be service dependent. We're lucky enough to have a a fairly decent PPE supply here. So I answered that question a little bit generally to start, but if you have limited N95 masks, you may elect to uh, try to divvy up surgical versus N95. That's gonna depend on your stock and your supply.
0: Mm-hmm. It actually segues uh, nicely into the next question we have here on the on the PPE topic. Just to be clear, do you wash your hands and put on new gloves with each toffing step?
4: This is an excellent question, one that I really probably hadn't spelled out specifically enough. So, what the, in, in general, when I have doffed my PPE in the past, I take my gloves off. I don't wash anything. The additional step, looking at the MIRS data, the Middle Eastern uh, Respiratory Syndrome, the cousin of, of COVID-19 uh, that, that occurs, has been occurring in the Middle East over the past several years, uh, there's some evidence from that outbreak that when the providers started washing or hand sanitizing their gloves prior to even doffing the gloves, that that step prevented quite a bit of healthcare worker uh, transmission. So that's the step that we've added here and encouraged at MCHD is that you've got your gloves, you've got your gown, you've got your mask and your eye protection on, and you're gonna start to doff. Wash your gloves before you doff the gloves or hand sanitize your gloves before you doff them. Then when your gloves are off, you're not gonna put gloves back on, but you're gonna wash or hand sanitize again before you take off your gown. And you're gonna hand sanitize again or wash again before you take off your eyewear then you're going to hand sanitize or wash again before you take off your mask. Now, you may be asking about or thinking about um, if you have a tearaway gown, yes, you can pull your gown and your gloves off and wrap them together. That is um, an acceptable uh, doffing technique. We don't have tearaway gowns here, so we're going gloves, gown, eyewear, mask is our order, most contaminated to least. And again, wash the gloves before you doff them and then wash your hands in between each step. That makes sense.
0: Okay, uh, switching gears slightly to talk about MDIs uh, and the fact that uh, MDIs are on back order in some places. Can you use a small volume closed nebulizer system to supplement for an MDI and a spacer? Would that give the same effect since MDIs are on back order?
2: There's, you know, I've seen a lot
4: of different um, uh, negative pressure. Uh, triggered nebulizer systems that are out there, um, several ideas on on closing the nebulization system. And to be honest, I don't know that anyone has the right answer here or knows any scientific data, pro or con. The general consensus from critical care, pulmonology, um, ICU, is to avoid nebulizing medication. Uh, there are some um, groups out of the UK that feel like the nebulization occurs outside the patient, so it's not dangerous. Uh, we here at MCHD really are taking the stance that our number one goal was to protect our paramedics from healthcare worker transmission of this virus. So we are taking a pretty hard stance that we're going to avoid Uh, nebulizing any medication, really, at at almost all costs, except for very specific uh, situations. The other issue, you know, for folks that are having trouble sourcing MDIs or, you know, cost prohibitive is really we want to use these in the Weezers, right? That's going to be the asthmatics and the COPD patients, not the viral pneumonia COVID patients who had no lung disease to start. So, almost all of these asthma COPD patients are going to have their own inhaler, so one step we've taken here at MCHD is to change our protocols and to encourage our, medici- our medics to ask the patient about their home medications, and if they have an MDI, to bring it with them and to use that en route as opposed to using nebulized WDRA. Yeah, we've had
3: our colleagues reach out to us from hospitals saying, please, please, please have the medics bring the patient's MDIs with them because just like us, and I'm sure many of you, we're having a hard time sourcing these things
0: i had a couple questions come in about a high flow nasal cannula. Um, here's one you referred to high flow nasal cannula. What is that? Is that a regular nasal cannula or something else?
3: Yeah. So that's a great question because it, I think it's all in the terminology, right? So in a lot of airway algorithms, you can run, we run aptic oxygenation at 15 liters per minute, which is fairly high flow for a nasal cannula. That being said, the high flow, uh, Systems that they're talking about in the hospital are eons you know, more than that. You know the flow rates. Uh, one of the uh, yeah, 60, 60, 60 liters, liters per minute, 40, up to, 60 liters per minute. So it is um, it is an it's actual a different device. Yeah, it's an it's actual
4: uh, piece of equipment uh, used similarly to non-invasive positive pressure. Uh, it's you can Google image high flow nasal cannula versus BiPAP, and there's been studies comparing the two and uh, you can get a look at what those uh, contraptions look like. So when we talk about high flow nasal cannula, in that sense, that's the specific hospital based um, you know, piece of equipment. There's been some talk about extending high flow nasal cannula to uh, the pre hospital setting. The big limitation there is you have to have uh, you know O2 flows up to up to you know thirty, forty, fifty, sixty liters per minute, which is not possible in most most ambulances with the with the Uh, supplies that we have. Now, taking that a little bit more uh, back further, when we talk about aerosol generating procedures, most sources talk about anything greater than six liters per minute being high flow or aerosol generating. So that's that's not a high flow nasal Kenya like you would see in the ED or the ICU. That's just that cutoff between how much flow do you have to have before you start spraying the virus? And again, there's no real answer to that question. No, there's no solid data there's there. There's no solid
3: set point. We're,
4: we're picking six based on, you know, really expert opinion here at
0: MCHD, so. All right, we will move to a question here from Greg who's listening. And what are your thoughts on epi-IM for COPD and not just asthma?
3: Yeah, I would not use it for COPD. Uh, The reason is, is that almost a priori, these patients have vascular disease, have underlying comorbidities, and we see if you're going to see a bad outcome with it, uh, you're going to see it using it in an older COPD patient. So what we tell our folks is, you know, we're, we're, we're not really promoting any nebulization use, but the good thing about asthmatics and really COPD uh, patients is they kind of come with their diagnosis, don't they? You know, I mean, when you're taking your history, they're going to give you an asthma history or a chronic lung disease type history to help us sort these patients out. I think in the moderate to severe asthmatic, uh, IM epinephrine is life-saving and and it's, we see that time and time again here in our service. So I would, there's been stuff online about tributylene sub-Q and things like that. Um, I think we were reluctant to bring another drug into armamentarium, and we are, are now using uh, even more IM epinephrine for uh, asthmatics for its beta effects. Uh, I would avoid it in COPD. I'll yeah. kick it over to Casey and Lim, give his two cents. But yeah, there's no evidence
4: supporting that, and again, those patients are often fragile, and they're the ones that are going to have the arrhythmias and the and the side effects from from the IM or the sub-Q epinephrine or the IM or sub-Q Yeah, so. and, and you know,
3: just, uh, I'll try to stay on tack, but for, and for God's sakes, don't give it IV. I mean, if you look at all the bad outcomes with, with epinephrine given to our patients who aren't in cardiac arrest already, it's it's all these dysrhythmias, all these bad things that happen, it's when we have guidelines that give them IV. It's, it's as effective
0: uh, and a lot, lot safer IM. Okay, and from Allison here we have a question. We are researching oral liquid albuterol. Any thoughts on that?
4: Yeah, this is another old school one. Uh, we again, you you're in a situation where you're dealing with an unknown enemy, you're altering protocols left and right, and then you bring in a new medication or a different formulation of a medication that medics and really medical directors aren't familiar with. It it's just a setup that's ripe for for medication error. There are you know, some old-school pulmonologists that I worked with when I was in residency 15 years ago that still hung on to oral albuterol. There are some uh, PEDS protocols that have it in there. You know, In Australia and UK, there's still some IV albuterol being used. To be honest, no one was using albuterol orally six weeks ago. If you're going to look into liquid, there is some data out there. It doesn't work very well. And to be honest, it's probably going to be Uh, sourced out, if it's not already, very, very soon. Realistically, I would concentrate on trying to make a good differential and deciding who really needs albuterol, number one, and number two, you know, encouraging the patients to bring their own albuterol MDIs from home and probably not getting lost in the the weeds, looking for new treatments that are going to lead to med errors that are Much 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 less efficacious.
3: Yeah, I would agree. I mean, we're very reluctant here to go um, You know look at the way we practice now guys and the way we all practiced uh, two and a half three weeks ago. It is 180 degrees opposite right uh, here. We were uh, Very aggressive with our protocols and now we are preaching less is more um, in many many ways so I think that um you know I would agree with dr. patrick you know we we kind of reserve treatment for people that are really, really severe and extremis now, and I think the go to drug there if they're if they have bronchospasm and they you think they have an asthma type flavor is I am and then airway support uh in
0: regard to the choice of an airway device here's one in our current pandemic do you suggest King superglottic airways or LMAs over an endotracheal intubation when an airway must be secured right another
3: really good question we get on our nightly call with all of our crews actually we just talked with one of our uh, our si- mad scientist clinical specialist Brad wars one of our medics right before we walked into the room to get on this um, I don't think there is a clear answer. Uh, we, uh, we favor, or I favor, I think Dr. Patrick does too, a supraglottic. And the reason for that is the more we're mucking around, especially if you don't have a video device, uh, the more you're exposing yourself to aerosol generating uh, p- potential. Um that being said, you know, the kickback you would get, and we've gotten from our medics is, well, what about what about the uh, eye gel? It doesn't make a perfect seal. Yeah, there is nothing perfect. However, you can put a surgical mask. You can you can mitigate some different things. We both think that uh, I think that the ease of insertion and the less invasive procedure kind of trumps the cuff tracheal tube. Uh, now, remember, it's EMS and emergency medicine guys, so one size does not fit all. You, no medical director can make a blanket statement that fits every patient. So it is uh, patient-specific. There are some people, uh, people with foreign bodies, things like that, that you suspect and you want to take a look with a video device um, that I think still would be, uh, you know, better to intubate. So, But as a general rule, I favor supraglottics in this coronavirus era. Case yeah, there.
4: I would just add, make sure, sure. you're putting your filter on Right, exactly. The, the super before you place it, it's going to you know provide you maximum protection, less time open to the air, and make sure you're taping or covering with something an electrode or a piece of tape the uh, the gastric port on the right, on the exactly. if you're using yeah. an I gel. Uh, and again, if you wanted to have a high school debate team back and forth, one can make a very good argument for endotracheal tubes ahead of ahead of super This is not based at all in in research or, you know, hard science. It's just
3: There are a, no RCTs uh, yeah. in the last two weeks on this. It's
4: just our, our best guess. It's a good question.
0: All right. And how about uh, what's going on in other countries? I've seen patients in Italian hospitals wearing what looks like a plastic jar over their heads. What are those?
4: They're what every single American doctor is trying to source via 3D printer yeah. And every avenue you can you can get, it's really what's thought to be one of the holy grails for these folks. And those are um, basically encompassing CPAP masks. So you get the benefit of CPAP and you've got an enclosed system. So it really is from a safety standpoint, uh, ideal. Unfortunately, we've not bought into those on this side of the pond. So they're not readily available in the States really but they really solve the problem, right? There's, patients are more comfortable, virus is kept inside the hood and the patient gets the benefit of, of non-invasive uh, CPAP. So lots of folks out there, lots of EDs and ICUs are trying to, to source these things. But when you see those, those are just, those are just an all-encompassing, non-invasive positive pressure helmet.
0: Okay. Um let's talk about CPR a little bit. We had a couple questions coming in about CPR. I'll just read them back to back. Should we hold compressions beyond the AHA recommendation of 10 seconds? And also as a follow-up, when you perform CPR, do you put a mask on the patient and then remove it when doing the or, or when administering the two breaths with the BVM? So, yeah, let's just say this is 100%
4: you know, editorial in in nature, in my own opinion, I let Dr. Dixon weigh in with his. We're, you know, if we can avoid the 10-second pause, let's, let's, you know, let's keep that in mind. But we have to protect ourselves when we go into these cardiac arrest situations. And if that means 15 seconds instead of 10 to get properly donned in your PPE, then that's, in my personal opinion, I'm speaking to my MCHD medics out there because they're the only ones that have Delegated practice powers under me. I want them to put their PPE on uh, ahead of watching a 10-second clock. As far as mask on the patient, yes, we're advising that here at MCHD with a filter, with with with, with a filter, and even before we're using uh, any you know ventilatory procedures, a surgical mask on the patient to start. We're actually having our alarm folks instruct bystanders to lay a towel or a T-shirt or to, you know, some out some claw, type of cloth, some barrier over their over their face and uh, nose and mouth when they start bystander CPR. Now, the second part of this question is, what patients are we doing CPR on here? And is this a 45 year old with a V fib arrest? And the answer with that that CPR needs to look almost exactly the same tomorrow as it looked in November of 2019. As far as CPR on a COVID suspected COVID patient. That's going to be a different ethical dilemma that you're going to have to discuss within your service because those patients invariably uh, do not do well and the, the survival rate is fairly abysmal. I'll let you weigh in, Dr. Dixon.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I I agree. I agree. I mean, I think we're living in a new world and um, it's difficult for every service because we have to change our practice. We have to keep ourselves safe. And one of the ways, a couple of the fallouts that we had here were on patients in CPRs and uh uh, altered mental status of so post-seizure and then the patient wakes up and you, you realize that they're febrile and they've had a respiratory illness for a couple of days and now you've exposed some providers. So less is more, uh, slower is better, and you have to have a very methodical approach to to approaching these folks. Um, I agree with the, with the, there's, from what we know already, uh, that if you do suspect a COVID-related arrest, that they are going to have a dismal, uh, if uh, infinitesimally low uh, chance of meaningful survival Uh, we do um, recommend in our FROs now so our first responder organizations that if they some of them do not have viral filters if you do not have a viral filter please 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 do not go bagging these patients uh, because that vent if you look at the vent port closely on the valve it vents right back into the back of the truck so what we're instructing is which I think is more important that if you are going to start CPR Put high flow, uh, 15 liters nasal cannula, aptic oxygenation on the patient, cover the face with a surgical mask, and go ahead and start CPR until you can get an AED or something to evaluate the rhythm.
0: Okay. Um, Question here from David. I think we touched on this a little bit earlier, but uh, can you decon and reuse the MDI after the call?
4: There are actually some papers out there that look at this exact question in PEED clinics. It's where... Uh, probably most of this literature comes from, and the answer in a vacuum is probably yes. You probably do a pretty good job deconing these things and reusing them. It's not uncommon in in uh, New Zealand where yeah. Dr. Dixon's work, That was commonplace in their ED. This is done in Peds and and uh, POEM clinics. That being said, in the reality of COVID nineteen, I think with everyone's concern for you know transmission in any direction, whether it's healthcare worker transition or transmission or transmission to the public. I, Speaking only for myself as a medical director, I would not, uh, I would not approve that one. I think there's just too much, too much risk there. For for you mean you gave me this inhaler after the last patient you transported had a fever and a cough. I just, optics there, I think, are pretty poor.
3: Yeah, and I and I think back to my own. I would agree, Casey. And I think back to my own clinical practice, and uh, I don't think there's one patient out there that the the uh, albuterol. I gave them was uh, immediately life saving. Uh, so I think if you have the sick, sick asthmatic, the go to is is IM epinephrine. Um, and I really think that just as a whole, we need to um, get away from any type of, of medication that carries risk for patients.
0: This one here is on nitro. What size bottle of IV NTG are you using for acute heart failure?
3: Uh, I'm gonna actually give this one to Dr. Patrick, but thank you very, very much. Whoever wrote this question, you've made him a very, very happy doctor today. Take it away, Dr. Patrick. And Someone I, loving your nitrates. Loving I your did nitrates.
4: I did not write this and sneak this in. This was written by some some listener out there who that's really legit. Yeah, <laughs>
3: that's
4: a legit question. So here at MCHD we use the big bottles that you're used to seeing with the drips. Uh we Looked at sourcing the 50 milligram per 10 mL small bottle, but carrying 50 milligrams in one bottle seemed a bit risky from an error standpoint. So the the large bottles are the 100 microgram per milliliter concentration. So here we do a one milligram bolus uh, for our respiratory distress, acute pulmonary edema patients, and we can repeat that again in five minutes if their systolic remains greater than 160. I would really encourage the listeners out there this is a you know this is a a cohort of patients, the acute pulmonary edema scape patients, whatever you want to call them that typically nitrates go hand in hand with non invasive positive pressure, and now that's a aerosol generating procedure, and so we're trying to limit that one way that really is a in my clinical practice, and we've seen here in the service we published on this if you'd like. to to have a copy of the paper, I'd be happy to supply you offline afterwards. But we've seen quite a few patients that get a milligram or two milligrams of IV nitroglycerin that are in flora acute pulmonary edema that end up not actually needing BiPAP at all or CPAP at all. So I feel like in this situation especially, it's time to really push that forward because these patients can, A, remain off the ventilator where they don't need to be because we know they do worse with that. And B, we can keep them off CPAP or BiPAP, decreased any potential
0: COVID transmission.
4: So thanks for the question. You get the question of the day award for me. I get to talk about nitrate.
0: All right. John is listening in. He has a question about capnography values. What numbers can we expect to see in the COVID patient when using
1: capnography?
4: I don't know the answer. Do you know the answer? I would say probably fairly normal. But I don't know. I've, I've read some stuff that's kind of
3: all over the board. I think early on, John, when we uh, encounter them in the field, um, that they're going to be fairly normal. This is not a, a, a retention issue. This is it's purely an oxygenation issue, right? Or a type one respiratory failure, uh, where they have fluid collections, they have uh, issues with diffusing across their VLI. Um, and there may be some dead space in there and atelectasis and things like that, uh, but I would expect at
4: least early on normal CAPNO numbers. Yeah, and I think just to piggyback on the CAPNO the idea here, and we talked about this some in the lecture, but we really need to refine our clinical skills and, and fall back on our clinical skills in this era so that we're only using medications and treatments and airway interventions in the exact patients that need them as opposed to the knee-jerk Shorter breath albuterol, knee jerk CPAP or BiPAP trial in the shorter breath patient that I am woefully guilty of in my own personal practice. So I'm not targeting that at any one group. I'm a, I'm a guilty party here because, you know, three months ago, what did it hurt to put a, a CPAP or a BiPAP mask on a patient? Really nothing. What did it hurt to give them a neb? Nothing. And now it does. So use that capnography to look for that shark fin and that, you know, that end title that's elevated in that true asthmatic patient. And that may be the one where you want to veer off and, and treat more aggressively with epinephrine, for example. So that's, that's the way I would approach it. I yeah. would use it more as a, as a diagnostic tool and really try to, to fine-tune your, your differential in this, in this situation.
0: Yeah, agreed. So you uh, talked about filtration systems in your talk. Here's a question on the reliability. How reliable are the inline HEPA filters on CPAP? BVM, and nebulizers for the aerosol-generating procedures that you discussed?
4: Well, there's, there's a question on the, on the uh, webinar board asking about the size and microns of COVID-19. Most HEPA filters, I'm not an expert, I've read some over the past week, are going to filter up to a hundredth of a micron, very small. So the size in microns of COVID-19 is uh, 0.125 uh, microns. So it's going to filter those pretty pretty efficiently would be my guess. I don't know any data about the the effect effectiveness. I would say the respiratory therapists are excellent um, resources here. They really know the filters and know the, the setup and the connectors very well. Uh, I would go to your manufacturer specs as well and and rely on your, your vendors also. It takes a lot of work into seeing what exactly the filters are that you have and, and what the specs right. are on those. We've been working on this for the last last week, really. Right. And I would take, I would put an emphasis on ensure um,
3: that it's a closed system, right? Because you can still have mask leak um, where you could potentially, there's other potentials for aerosolizing this stuff that would be proximal to the filter. specifically mask leaks come to mind. Um, so always kind of weigh that in with the need to to do that procedure. Yeah.
0: So PPE shortage is something that's on everyone's mind. Here's an interesting question uh, question from Kathy: uh, Have you run into a shortage in PPE? And if so, have you considered the idea of a scout person who's donned in PPE to ask pertinent questions to identify the risk and the level of uh, of potential. Uh, PPE being required?
3: Right. Um, we have. Um, we, we initially had, as I said at the beginning of the Q&A, we have a, uh, a process in alarm to try to identify these patients. And the farther we get into this, the, the weirder the presentations get, the more I realize that I should have put a mask, we should have put a mask on all of our medics for every call uh, about a week ago at least. Uh, and the reason for that is, is that what happens when we have uh, a COVID positive patient slip by us and we're unprotected? Then, for right now, those medics have to have to go on isolation uh, for 14 days, uh, and so it can knock down your workforce uh, very rapidly. And that's why we brought in the N95 masks. Um even before we did an alarm screen. We have one of the medics approach. Um, and stay two meters away from the obviously kind of stable standing patient, and just query them about why they call on every call. So we don't approach. And then if they, if it turned into a PPE call, we the medic would be instructed to give the give the patient a surgical mask, go back to the truck, and put their PPE on, and then and then reapproach. But I think that's a really reasonable approach to limit your provider. The other thing is um, liaise with your first responder organizations right? PPE is in, um, is in high demand and short supply these days. And, uh, we have great first responders. We have great fire, uh, personnel here in the County. Um, but we work together and it used to be, we kind of all, all worked and we work as this great team and now we still do, uh, but we're way more selective and say, you know, don't call fire and bring them in and you burn their PPE unless
4: you absolutely need to. I guess just for the listeners out there, uh, Montgomery County Hospital District EMS. We're in Montgomery County, the uh, county due north of Harris County, which is where Houston Proper is. We cover about 1,100 square miles with about 250 uh, paramedics. We are a third service, uh, municipal tax base supported, and we have 13 first responder fire services uh, underneath us as well. So we, we operate separately but together. So that's just just for the listeners out there wondering about our relationship with our first responders, uh, we're sending one paramedic to the, to the patient, to the house on these calls and keeping that six feet and trying to again, minimize seven of us running up there in gowns and gloves and and N95s and, you know, uh, being exposed and using the equipment.
0: Another question here on capnography uh, from John to reduce beta agonist use. Any thoughts on using waveform capnography shark fins as the critical criterion?
4: Really, I think the answer to the to the couple questions to go really covers that. I don't know how you write that in a protocol, but absolutely we want to be sure that if we're going to use beta agonists that we're using them not as a knee jerk, but in a situation where they're needed. So if I didn't see things like a shark fin or elevated Entitled total value or you know a past history of asthma fit, you know fit the right patient age group You know a younger patient. Uh, I surely would not get anywhere close to right. I mean, the most
3: the, the vast majority of them right They come with their diagnosis by definition asthma is a chronic uh, Recurrent condition of bronchospasm and inflammation and it's chronic and recurrent these patients know they have the, the disease
0: Okay, so uh, Bob has a question about the hydrofluoral alkanes, the HFAs. I was under the impression that HFAs do not need or benefit from spacers. While I do understand that MDIs benefit, I thought most inhalers are are uh, HFAs, not MDIs.
2: I think that
4: Bob probably has more knowledge of HFAs and MDIs than I do. I'll go ahead and admit that one up front. I do know that the propellant, the the HFA propellant, the idea from the spacer and the benefit from the different propellant is to try to keep the medicine, you know, inhaled as opposed to smack in the back of the, smack in the, back soft, of palate. the soft palate. <laughs> yeah. So I guess if you had somebody that had mm-hmm. an HFA versus an MDI, it's a tough thing to sort through. So from our standpoint, we don't really want our medics sorting through whether it's an MDI or an HFA. We're just going to give them the tools to use the makeshift spacer and to you know try to get the medicine in the airways as opposed to stuck on the back of the back of the roof of the mouth. I don't know the the aerosolization <laughs> scientific data there, and so I can I don't want to speak outside my, outside my wheelhouse.
0: Uh, Okay, next one here is asking about foam CPAP masks. Uh, Have we seen any improvement with controlling exhaust from a BVM when using a foam CPAP mask with securing the strap in place? The agency that I work for has started purchasing inline filters, but we tend to also use foam masks with our BVMs instead of the plastic one provided. I was curious if that uh, might help in any way.
3: That's a great question, and uh, we're looking at each other very perplexed. I don't know the answer to that. Um, I think that you could could speculate that it may because you may get a better seal with a foam mask that contours to the to the tissue and to the bony structure of the face um, rather than a, a more the inflatable uh, plastic mask. But the fact of the matter is, I, I don't think like either one of us really know for sure.
0: That's sort of um, similar to our next one. Wouldn't the cuff of an endotracheal tube occlude the droplets coming up through the trach much much better than any SGA, which would just block the esophagus but keep the airway path from the trach to the outside open?
4: So we kind of answered this one in the earlier question. Theoretically, the answer is probably yes, but to get that endotracheal tube in place, You've got to spend a lot longer time in the airway with the with a direct laryngoscopy or a video laryngoscope. So we made the the executive decision here that based entirely on conjecture that we feel like the risk of aerosol generation is higher with the manipulation during the intubation as opposed to maybe an eighty percent seal instead of a hundred percent seal. Again, all conjecture conjecture. You can make a good argument either way.
3: Yeah, I think it is, you know, as we said before, it's case dependent as well. I mean, it's very difficult to to write a 100% rule. You will always use this device in every situation. Um, uh, you know, I can think of situations where you would want a tracheal tube versus uh, an SGA. Uh, but good question. I don't know. Uh, we're not trying to dance around the answer. I just think... Uh, no one really knows the uh, the 100% answer to
0: that. And we're just trying to weigh the risk
3: benefit to the our folks.
0: And how about placing a mask under a non-rebreather, uh, non-rebreather? Why not put a surgical mask under the non-rebreather? It would seem that covering the vent holes accomplished little since the exhalation still has to go somewhere. And now it's uh, more diffuse around the margins of the mask. Not
4: an unreasonable idea. I feel like if if it goes around the mask and you've got the surgical mask over the non rebreather, then it's going to go into the surgical mask just the same. But again, this is one that's we're all we're all sort of working working together, collaborating together, trying to come up with best practices. I've not seen that. Yeah, I've not done, seen that setup. I think but, it'd be doable though. But I don't know that I don't know that it's the wrong answer.
0: The next one here talks about suctioning. Wouldn't suctioning actually help control some of the secretions and fluids from the airway and contain them in the suction tubing and the canister?
4: I want them in the patient as long as they're not compromising the patient's uh, respiratory status, their oxygenation. I don't want them out around my crews. I don't want them out in the back of the ambulance. So if they've got a pool of mucus in their you know, posterior airway, upper airway, and they're satting 92, it can stay there for all I care. That would be my answer to that question.
3: Exactly right, because what happens, guys, when we, when we uh, start sticking uh Ducanto or Yankauer in the back of someone's throat, right, they're going to cough and gag, or there's a big, big potential for that to aerosolize this stuff. So I would agree. I think that, um, you know, this idea of silent hypoxemia, especially in these COVID patients, i.e. they're going to have horrible numbers, but they're really not going to look that bad. I think we have to take a graded, stepwise approach to these folks, and um, and where less is, less less is, is more.
0: more. As a follow-up to that, how do you manage inline suctioning down the airway and the placement of the viral filter? Do you use extension tubing with a suction port?
4: Well, I'll take that one and just say that most every endotracheal tube that I've placed, and that's decent number at this point the respiratory therapist or the nurse or someone standing around me generally suctions that airway as soon as i place the endotracheal tube realistically in the age of covid we need to stop doing that yeah, if the patient a good degree more if the patient is compromised and you think there is a mucus plug or you think there is compromised oxygenation from excess secretions then by all means suction and suction carefully a lot of the setups I've seen, yes, the the extension tubing and the suction port has to go closer to the patient and the filter, otherwise you can't get to the to the trachea. But from my standpoint, very much fewer patients than get suctioned clinically need emergent suction, especially in the pre-hospital EMS setting where we're caring for these patients for short short periods of time. We do we just. We need to get them to the hospital. We need to allow the intensivists and the emergency uh, docs to sort these folks out in negative pressure rooms with good light and in more controlled situations than we have in the in the house and in the back of the ambulance. And that goes against everything that we've preached at MCHD for the four years that I've been involved. But we really have to make that 179 degree, 180 degree turn. Because if we're not healthy to take care of our patients and we don't put our own safety first and and try to decrease transmission to our per- you know, our paramedic providers, then our patients are going to be hosed as a whole.
0: Okay, we'd like to get through a few more questions here. We thank you both for the extra time. Can you talk about the value of the breath-actuated nebulizers, (BAN)?
4: There are folks using them and feel like that they may be safer. They're not something that I'm familiar with other than I've seen them used in in EDs and intensive care units. I don't order these, specifically because they're more expensive than the than the general old-school cup that we use. I know folks out there are using them and are proponents of them. Again, I feel like the, the tact, the, the party line that we're taking here at MCHD is we really want to keep our paramedics safe at all costs, number one, ahead of any number two you can insert. So from our standpoint, we are discouraging NEBs at all costs, NEBs of any kind, and to be honest, we'd have to source those and pay for them and, and try to keep a stock up. And realistically, that's probably going to be a, a non-starter to begin with.
0: Uh, here's one from Michael. Uh, does heat kill the COVID-19 virus as it does other similar respiratory infections? Do you know?
3: Well, we're from being from southeast Texas and going into the summer season, we <laughs> hope to God it does. Um I think the true answer to that is this is such a novel virus, we don't know. I suspect there, it is heat labile, but can I give you the science and the, the numbers? And I think it all depends on wh- where what environment the virus is in. You know, someone asked me, well, Doc, if I, if I cough onto a sidewalk in southeast Texas in August, is it going to live? And I
4: thought, not very long. Yeah, right? the, and if you're referring more to sterilization uh, heat, there was some information that was uh, passed around last couple of days on social media out of Stanford looking at 150 degrees or so, sterilizing N95 masks and reusing them. The, my best interpretation of that information that went around was they looked at sterilization of E. coli. I don't know that there's hard and fast data out there of what temperature and how long we need to cook these masks to sterilize. Uh, coronavirus i don't I don't know the answer to that if somebody out there has that answer i'd be happy to to see it share it with me I, I what went around from Stanford looked to me like e coli kill, which is fine and good, but i don't know how much that applies to what we're dealing with. I'm not sure
0: okay, just a couple more quick questions here. Uh, This one goes back to our earlier discussion about uh, masks and NRBs. Based on your concept of covering the exhalation ports on the non-rebreather, are we not increasing the work of breathing and and patient anxiety, especially since we're covering a means of exhalation? And then we're adding to that by placing the mask over the top of the non-rebreather. This person asks, I understand they can still exhale around the mask as it does not seal tightly, but these people are hypoxic. So are we just adding to that?
4: Well, I would just ask you to go into the next question, John. I think they uh, are inter- interrelated. So make a part two okay. here and then we'll answer
0: both of those. Sure. Next one is about ketamine. So uh, why, do you, why is ketamine preferred as a sedative?
4: In this situation, because a thrashing patient is 100% an aerosol generating patient or an aerosol generating procedure, you know, if someone is that hypoxic that they can't tolerate a surgical mask over over a non-rebreather, then we've probably got bigger issues and the the thrashing patient is going to be spewing virus. So ketamine is preferred because it's hemodynamic profile. It's going to be less hypotension inducing. Uh, We... At MCHD are familiar with it, and it's our sedative of choice for that reason. If you're looking at, you know, an asthmatic patient, it's also got some bronchodilatory effects, so we feel like it's got the best side effect benefit profile. So in these patients, that may be one, if they're that anxious and that claustrophobic and that air-hungry, they may need some some sedation.
3: Right. That's just in the DSI procedure. On, a, on a, another note, a, a colleague of ours that we're on the list with uh, from uh, Indiana University, uh, made this exact point, and one of the points I made is from ICU that there's a lot of peri airway uh, deaths associated with these patients. I think that's one of the reasons why is a we may not be intubating them soon enough, and b a thrashing hypoxic patient needs a number one control first. Right, we can't do anything with these patients until you can control them and actually get them oxygenated and ventilated before you try to intubate them. The big, big key point, right? Our DSI procedure did not did not go away and we uh, do not paralyze people who are hypoxic.
4: And I would just I would just add on just a thought that I wanted to get across in the discussion today, but it's not really a question that was asked, but it extends from this thought process. And if anyone's followed, you know, social media followed the the FOMED world and you know, MCRIT and PUMCRIT and some of the thought leaders, there's a lot of banter and a lot of discussion back and forth about when to intubate these patients and to control their airway. And do are we going to intubate a number? Are we intubating these hypoxic patients at a certain point? And I would urge you to back up for just a second and remember that we're going to see CHF exacerbations, asthma exacerbations, and COPD exacerbations along with covid And those are groups of patients that we know intubation can be harmful and likely harmful and and detrimental. So when we talk about intubating these patients that are refractory, that have refractory hypoxia, we're not talking about all comers in COVID-19. We're talking about the patients that are known COVID viral pneumonia patients, or at least that's the primary um, disease process. So sometimes from an EMS standpoint, that's impossible to know. We don't have an echo. We don't have a, a D-dimer. We don't have a chest X-ray. So not that we can't make a good differential and use our exam skills, but these are complex patients, often with complex pathology. And this is a situation where if the patient is speaking and they're not in an extremis and they're not crashing and their heart rate's 85 and their oxygen saturation's 80% on four liters nasal cannula, Yes, they very well are looking at getting innovated at the hospital, but I would urge the pre-hospital providers out there to let that decision be made with as much information as possible uh, in a more controlled negative pressure environment, if at all possible, both to protect yourself and to be sure that our diagnosis is correct. So just a, a general point I'd hope to get across, so thanks for indulging me there.
0: Dr. Rob Dixon, Dr. Casey Patrick, I want to thank you both for your time today, not, not just in putting together this presentation, but also um, staying over time and, and uh, replying to all the great questions that we've had coming in. I want to, um, again, thank our sponsor, Ambu, for uh, sponsoring today's presentation. Um, I do want to mention to our audience that this webinar is going to be archived and available for viewing online. You'll be able to find that at emsworld.com webinars. Um, Dr. Dixon, Dr. Patrick, any, any uh, closing comments before we call it a day?
4: I just urge, urge the listeners out there, quick shameless plug, check out the MCHD Paramedic Podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts. We've got a couple COVID update podcasts through various points in time of this pandemic, just put up a similar uh, topic discussion on the, on the COVID airway that if you listen to the lecture today, you probably heard most of it, but uh, definitely an easily uh, digestible spot to, to get a little more information. We also have a YouTube page, MCHD Paramedic Podcast 360, where you saw the video from in today's presentation. There's several others there to check out as well. Thanks EMS World, thanks Ambu for having us. We really appreciate the opportunity to share as always, this is collaborative. We're working back and forth and together and sideways trying to get through this. We'd be happy to hear any feedback. We've got some additional questions over on the, on the webinar board. We'll do our best to try to answer those in a, in a group format. But thanks, everyone, for having us and for listening. Okay. Dr. Dixon? Thank you very much.
3: and uh, uh, Everybody, stay safe out there. Wear your PPE. Uh, we uh, collectively, as emergency providers, have been down this road before and through lots of disasters. We got through those, and we will get through this one collaboratively together.
0: Thank, well, thank you. Well, thank, you. Thank, you. Yeah, thank you both, and um, thanks. thanks again to our audience for the questions, and uh, we hope everyone has a safe and enjoyable day.
2: This has been an episode of EMS
4: World Podcast. You can find this audio and more like it on the podcast page
0: of emsworld.com. You can also follow EMS World on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram.